And it sure is good to have Terry and Nancy back. Um, we've missed you guys a lot, and, and that's praise God. All right. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at the second letter that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, and this is Smyrna. Pastor David got us started here last week, in case you don't know that we're, we're, we're following each other around. So I preached this last week in Lapine, preach it here this week. Paul, Chad, I'm not even going to go into it. You'll figure it out. If you, if you, if you like move around locations or listen online, you're going to hear the same sermon twice, which sometimes we need to hear the same sermon twice. I know I do, but anyway, uh, this is going to be uh, the follow-up to what David preached last week in Ephesus. Now, as a quick reminder... These are real churches that existed in real places at a real time, and that's important to point out. This is Asia Minor, is when it, that's what it was then, now it's Turkey. The reason that I point this out is because some people interpret these letters to represent church ages. And, and so the first letter, Ephesus, was the current church age, and then Smyrna was three to 500 years after that. And then they, they go all the way down to the last church, Laodicea, which is the church right before Jesus comes. And if you've been taught that, it's okay. It may be some, some truth to it. There may be some generalities that work, but I don't, I don't know that that is the way we're supposed to look at them. I think it makes more sense to treat these letters as though they apply to all churches throughout all time. And the reason I think this is because these seven churches that Jesus wrote to, they existed right next to each other in, in this kind of almost like a horseshoe shape. And they, they, they went in order of the letters being written all the way around the, the circle. And he wrote a different letter to each one of them. So if you can imagine if Jesus were to write a letter to the church of Central Oregon today, you, you think he would write one letter, even though we all live in the same area at the same time, do you think he'd write one letter and say, there's your letter? No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't apply. What he's going to say to us would be very different than maybe what he would say to the church over there or the church over here. And I think that's true of this as well. And then to compound that further, imagine if Jesus were to write a church to the Church of America and to the church in China right now. It wouldn't look anything the same. They'd be very different for a reason. And so what that means is that we need to look at each of these letters carefully to figure out what Jesus thinks about his church. And it's good for us to take our pulse every once in a while as a church, you know, kind of do a checkup. And this is one of those times when we get to do that. We get to see the things that he loves about his church and the things that he doesn't love about his church. And then, and then we need to figure out, okay, what do we do? What do we change? What do we reinforce? What do we repent of? And, and what do we take encouragement from as we look at these things? So these, these um, seven letters are a real blessing, and I'm glad they exist and that Jesus wrote them. Now, what we're going to find out as we go through the letter to the church at Smyrna, possibly, is that we don't have a whole lot in common with them. And that's probably kind of nice if you've read that letter, but it could change. And it's important that we understand that what he wrote to this church, maybe it doesn't apply to us now, but it could, and we need to be prepared for that possibility. Smyrna, by the way, is the shortest letter. I, I, I did the scheduling of the letters, so <laughs> David got Ephesus. I got Smyrna. It just worked out that way. It wasn't, I promise. They, they got a good grade on the report card from Jesus. I think they would have gotten an, an A. I love the graphic Chad put together um, for us. We, we actually took comments from our old report cards, and you can guess which ones they are. Uh, Smyrna was a pleasure to have in class. I didn't get that one very often, but, but they did. There were only one of two churches that Jesus didn't have any reprimand for or any call to repentance, and the other church is Philadelphia. By the way, that's the other danger of this. If we, if we try to find the letter that we like and, and apply it to us and say the other letters don't, 
We always pick Philadelphia for some reason. Have you noticed that? that? Oh, this must be us. And then you forget about the other ones. Chances are we have a lot more in common with a lot of the, the bad report card stuff than we might think. So don't do that. Okay, we're going to go ahead and read our text. And then uh, we'll jump into to the, the body of the letter. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the letter starts out with the, the phrase, uh, same as the other ones, to the angel of the church. And, and I think David pointed it out last week that that, that simply means messenger. And, and so it could mean angel. angels were definitely messengers of God, but it could also just mean the courier, the guy that, that got the letter from John, took it to the church and read it. It could mean the elders of the church. It, I, mean, I guess it could mean that an angel came in and read the letter. That would be pretty cool and pretty terrifying. But I think just think of it as a courier would, would work best. You can research that and have fun searching it out, but we're not, getting, we're not going there. So what do we know about Smyrna? Um, the town is the only one of the seven churches that are still, it still exists today. That, that city still is there. It's now called Izmir, but it's the only one. The rest are just ruins. The name of the town comes from the word myrrh. Uh, myrrh is that kind of sap-like resin that they would get out of a certain tree in that area, that they would extract the liquid, uh, grind it into a, like dry, grind it into a powder, and they would use it to make perfumes and also uh, medicines. And they would use it in burial very often. So they exported a lot of it to different places for that purpose. Egypt was one of the, the main places that it got exported to for, for their burial purposes. Uh, there's a guy named Joe Stoll who put together a series on this on, on YouTube, and that's where I looked at it. Very helpful. I stole from this heavily, uh, to, you know, a lot of this stuff. But one of the things he points out, and it's kind of neat to think about, is that Jesus's life and death were both kind of bookended with myrrh. <laughs> the, the wise men brought frankincense, gold, and myrrh to welcome him. And at the end, Joseph of Arimathea took myrrh when they, when they prepared his body for burial. And likely it would have come from Smyrna. Doesn't doesn't have any great significance other than it's just kind of cool to think about, right? At the time this letter was written, Smyrna was just a bustling population of about 200,000 people. It was a thriving port city in the Roman Empire, but that wasn't always the case. There was a time um, around 600 BC that uh, the whole town was leveled. It, it came, a Lydian king came in, conquered it pretty much turned it into rubble, and it sat that way for a long time until Alexander the Great in 340 B.C., so roughly 400-some years before the letter was written, he, he had this vision to rebuild it. So they came in and they rebuilt Smyrna into this, this glorious city. And what that caused is the people of Smyrna had this great pride that they were the city that was dead and that came to life. So the, this idea that they were this resurrected city, it was all over their town. They had little reminders of this everywhere. And so the Christians would see that constantly. The other thing that they took great pride in was they, they had vied for and won the title of first of Asia, which I guess that was a big deal back then to be called the first of Asia. So they went against Ephesus and Pergamum and these other big places and Smyrna won first of Asia. They put it on their coins even because they thought it was such a big deal. So it's interesting that their giant boast was 
We were the city that was dead and came to life, and we are the first, right? So it's not a coincidence that Jesus starts out his letter saying, excuse me, those titles belong to me. You might think, you know, that's cute that you think you're the first of Asia, but I'm the first and the last, and I get the say, the final say. Those titles belong to Christ. And by claiming that he is the first and the last, I don't want anybody to miss this, it's important, Jesus is claiming that he is eternally God. Those titles, first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, they're titles that are reserved for God alone. And even the people that that have a problem with the deity of Christ, they know that those titles belong to God alone. And so they even try to say, no, no, that's talking about God when it says that. But then he goes on to say, I was dead and I came to life. Well, that means for sure that the one who had no beginning and no end died and came back to life. So it's definitely referring to Jesus, which means that definitely Jesus is God and not somebody who was something else and became God. He was eternally God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus claimed. Anybody who says something different than that is talking about a different Jesus. All right. That was just my own little rant. Now we're going to jump back in. So this is how Jesus introduces himself to them. And then in verse 9, he gets into the body of the letter by starting out by saying, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. This was a church that was facing heavy persecution. And Jesus wants to make sure they know that he knows. I think that's cool. I like that the one who, uh, it's, it says that he, he's in the midst of his churches in chapter 1. He, he walks among the lampstands. He cares about his church. He loves his church. It's precious to him. And he's intimately involved then and still today with what goes on in his church. He knows. Uh, And that gives me a lot of comfort. And it would have given them a lot of comfort too because uh, this guy Joe Stoll also points out that this word tribulation that Jesus uses, it actually refers to an ancient form of torture where a person would be spread out on their back and then the torturer would apply weights on their chest. One, after another, after another, to where you couldn't breathe and you would suffocate. That's the word tribulation. And Jesus is saying, I I know, I understand the weights that are being placed upon you. And and there were three weights that are mentioned here in this letter. The first one is poverty. The second one is slander. And the third one is fear of imprisonment slash death. I don't know if you've experienced any of those. Those are each one of those is a very heavy weight. They had all of them. The first weight that they felt was poverty. That's the first weight that was pressing down on them. And we have to ask the question, why in such a affluent city, the first of Asia, after all, why, why were they poor in a place like this? Well, one of the reasons was that the Christians there chose to remain loyal to God in a place where emperor worship was rampant. In fact, in, in 195 B.C., Smyrna became the first Asian city to build a temple to Rome that it hadn't been done before. All kinds of temples everywhere. Diana, Jupiter, you know, temples for everyone. You get a temple, you get a temple. That's how they kind of were. But they, they didn't have one to Rome. And they thought, we'll build one to Rome to celebrate the spirit of Rome and to celebrate some of the leaders of Rome, like Julius Caesar. What had happened, though, is what, what went, started out as kind of a way to celebrate the spirit turned into full-blown emperor worship. So by the time this letter was written and Domitian was Caesar, he made worship of himself mandatory. Great guy right there, right? I want to be worshipped as God, so I'm going to make that mandatory. And the way they did that 
was once a year, every Roman citizen was required to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the God of Caesar. Once you did that, you got a certificate that said you you'd fulfilled your religious duty and you promised your allegiance to Caesar. Now, again, to the people of Smyrna, this isn't a big deal. What's one more God? What's one more temple? You know, the more the merrier was their kind of motto. So no big deal. It's like, where do I throw the incense and where do I get my certificate? But for the Christian, imagine being a Christian at this time and being told that you have to do this. That's, that's a, you're drawing a line with you on one side and everybody else on the other side. Think about how scary that would be. And in fact, this text has nothing to do with this, but I just want to point out because people ask us all the time about the mark of the beast. Is this the mark? Is that the mark? Is the vaccine the mark? I've heard that. I'm not saying get the vaccine or don't, but I'm saying that whatever the mark of the beast is, it's going to look a whole lot more like this than something you just accidentally fall into. You know, you're not going to trip and go, oh, I took the mark. It's not, you won't accidentally do it. It's going to be this line of some kind that's drawn and you'll know what it is. I don't, I don't think that anybody's going to accidentally take the mark. So if you're one of those people, relax, it's okay. Okay. By participating in this thing, though, or by not participating in it, like I said, the Christians drew this line. And what that meant was the people of Smyrna were insulted by them. They were disgusted by them. And, and the government was disgusted by them. And so what that meant was, guess who they're not going to hire? Guess who they're not going to do business with? So when you set up your little area in the marketplace, they're going to walk right past you as though you didn't exist and not do business. That's why they were poor. Even though they lived in this bustling place that was prosperous, they were excluded from all of it. And the word poor used by Jesus, it doesn't mean they, they had a hard time putting a budget together or they couldn't make ends meet. It means abject poverty. They had nothing. And, and you can feel that. <laughs> if you've had a hard time making your bills or figuring out how you're going to pay for something, you can feel that weight pressure on you. Now, the interesting thing is that the Jewish people who lived in that area, you would think would be in the same boat as the Christians. Because guess what? How many gods do they worship? Just the one. So they, you'd think that there would be this, what about them thing going on? And there, and there may have been. The, the thing was that the Jews had been grandfathered into this system because they'd been a, a recognized religion by the Roman Empire for a long time. And they weren't really causing any problems. They, they followed the order. They did what they were supposed to do. So they weren't really going to, you know, come down on them. But now you've got one group and another group that are doing the same thing. And the Jews must have seen this and known. So they need to figure this out. We want to be able to keep our privilege. So we need to separate ourselves from these guys. And they'd always felt that separation from the Christians. They didn't like Christians. It was pretty obvious that, that um, they, they didn't believe the same things and all that. But the Romans didn't care about that. Remember in, in Acts, every time they would come up and say, hey, they don't believe the law the way we believe the law. And they think Jesus might be the Messiah. And the Romans were like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to us at all. You guys go figure that out. They need to find something that's going to get the Romans on board. And they do just that. They slander these Christians. They make up lies about them. And I want you to know the spirit of this is still alive and well today. If you want to uh, bury your enemy, make them out to be dangerous and spread as much false information about them as you possibly can. And we see this in our political systems, both sides, if we're being honest. We see it in our media. We see it on, you know, social media, mainstream media. This is ugly. God hates it. Christians should have no part in it. The Jews made up lies about the Christians so that the people of Smyrna would despise them. And I want you to notice they took some things that were kind of true, 
and turned them into things that were kind of gross. So if you know what the Christians were like, if you think back to Acts chapter 2, they would meet together in homes, they would have meals together, they would pray together, encourage each other, they would have communion together. And these things became known as agape feasts or love feasts. Well, what they ended up doing was saying, you know what they're doing in there, Romans? Orgies. These guys are doing gross things in here. You know what else they're doing? Cannibalism. Yeah, they're eating the body and the blood of people. Ugh, can you? And you know what else? They hate the family. They, they leave mother and father, brother and sister, so they can be together. They prefer each other to the family unit. The family unit is at stake here. I mean, you can see what they would do here and how it would work. Then the Romans are going, ah, oh, the Christians are the worst. We hate those guys. And, and they started to do something about it. See, the, the Jews were playing dirty, and it worked. And this is why Jesus uses such harsh language. You know, it's like they, they're, they're the synagogue of Satan. That's, that's kind of rough, isn't it? But he's basically saying, these guys say they're my people. They say they're going to my church. No, they don't go to my church. They go to Satan's church. They're his people. And it reminds you of what, what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John eight forty four when he said, they're like, we know who our father is. Remember when they took that shot at Jesus? We know our dad. And he's like, yeah, I know your dad too. And it's not God. You are of your father, the devil. And you do the things that he did. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And guess what? These guys are lying and they're murdering. It's like father, like son all over again. This slander would end up resulting in these Christians being killed. So the Christians in the city were made out to be a problem to get rid of, which is exactly what happened. So you've got the weight of poverty. You've got the weight of slander. And now you have the third weight uh, that's spelled out in verse 10. It says, Jesus says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. A prison at this time was nothing like it is in our time. It wasn't meant to rehabilitate anybody. There was no, you know, they didn't have a weight room. It wasn't that kind of thing. No TV. Uh, this was a place where you would go to be coerced into doing what they wanted you to do. Or you were being held for trial or you're being held for ex- execution. That was it. That's what prison was for. The text tells us that the, the devil is responsible for putting them into prison. And we know what the devil hopes to accomplish through it because he doesn't change his, you know, his, his desires very often. He wants to see them curse God to his face or to be executed. That's what he's hoping will happen. One of those two things. Now, this is where it gets kind of uh, hard. I want you to notice that Even though these Christians were facing abject poverty, vicious slander, imprisonment, and death, Jesus doesn't ride in on his horse to save the day. Yet. There's a time coming when he will. But for now, suffering may be a part of the Christian's life. And I know nobody wants to hear that, but we read it. We see it right here again. It's in the Bible. I don't know why this is such a foreign concept to so many Christians, but I can just picture people saying even now, wait a minute, what about, I saw that book. What about my best life now? What, what about that? I was promised, you know, this and that. I said there were, you know, that's what we think of. It's almost like sometimes we sell people a bill of goods. If you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away and you won't have any health problems and you'll have money. That's what's called the gospel in many churches right now. And it's not. What we get is Jesus. 
that's what we're promised. So that means that we do have abundant life as Christians. That's a real promise, abundant life, but not a life of abundance. Make sure you don't get those mixed up. Jesus did promise us our best life, but it's it's the one that's coming. So for now, he simply tells his, his followers, do not fear. And then he gives them the reason why this is happening. You know, and sometimes it's nice to get a reason. It's like, can I just know the reason? Well, this is one of those times when it's not that helpful. It just says that you may be tested. And it's like, what? That's the reason? A test? I mean, how many of you guys enjoy a good test? We don't. It's like, I don't like tests. I stink at tests, and I'll probably fail a test if it's given to me. And there's something about that that sounds kind of weird. I just want to say, hey, just let's skip the test and beam me up. You know, let's, let's just go home. Let's do it that way. Why would God want us to be tested? Well, what if we were to change the phrase, that you may be tested, to this phrase, that you may be proven? It's the same Greek word, and that's really what it's indicating. God allowed Jesus to be put through this test by Satan in the wilderness. Uh, God allowed Abraham to be put through this test with Isaac. And you know what the result was? It, they, they were proven. <laughs> It proved who they were. That's a good thing. And we're told to even do this to ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, I know you guys have heard this verse. Verse 5 says, examine yourselves. It's the same word. Put yourself to the test. Why? To find out if there's faith there. To find out if Christ is there. Is Christ in you? The test will prove that out. That's a good thing. I want you to think about how many people call themselves Christians. At the first sign of bad weather, they abandon ship. They're gone. We have the parable of the seed and the sowers where seeds are thrown out and only one seed produced life. We need to know. I want you to think about these Christians in Smyrna. They were going to be thrown into prison, maybe lose their own lives because of their faithfulness to Christ. They wouldn't deny Christ. Do you think their faith was real? Was it proven? Absolutely. They knew it and everybody else knew it. That's helpful. And I want you to know the reason that we pass the test is because of Christ. Christ in us is the only reason we pass the test. If he wasn't there, I would fail it time and time again. The reason I won't fail it is because Christ is in me. And that's the value of suffering and trials. They have an important purpose in the life of a Christian because they they grow our faith. They purify the church. They sanctify us into the image of Christ. And they display the reality of Christ to an unbelieving world. That's, That's a good thing. Now, ironically, Satan is placing these weights on our chest to push us away from Christ. But for the genuine Christian... It has the exact opposite effect. It solidifies us to Christ. It binds us to him, and it makes us more reliant upon him. I love that. I cannot be crushed because Christ in me cannot be crushed. In fact, I remember a time when Christ crushed Satan. His head was under his foot. So it's like, how you like that? You're going to try to crush me? I have a Savior named Jesus that will crush you. And I love that. And not only that, but when we begin to cry out to Jesus and turn to him in faith, he begins to remove these weights from our chest. You can just feel the the breath coming back. And he does this by letting us know that 
what we're going through has a purpose. We just talked about that. And that they have a time limit. <laughs> right? Verse 10 says, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, it isn't completely clear what's meant by these 10 days. You know, jump into the commentaries and have fun. Lots of ideas. Uh, here's the main ones. The first one is just that it meant 10 days. <laughs> so it's a deep one. Uh, but for somebody in that church that got that letter, it, it mattered. 10 days, and it, and it worked. That's a good possibility. It probably was. It could have meant that these 10 days were symbolic of 10 years. In fact, it's a time not long from now, would be coming in, in 303 to 313 when Diocletian would come in and wreak havoc. It was called uh, uh, the Great Persecution under him. So there was a 10-year period where this was just, it didn't look like it was going to end, and then Constantine came in and just put a stop to it. Could be that. It could mean that the, the 10 days refers to 10 emperors, because from Nero to Diocletian, guess how many you've got? 10. So it, you know what else? Because God's Word's so amazing, Maybe it's a little bit of all of them, and that, and that it had multiple meanings, because it could. I don't know, but I, I know this. Regardless of where you finally land on the 10 days, Jesus wanted us to know that, that these things were brief in comparison to eternity. That's what he wants us to know. What we're going through is nothing compared to, you know, what's 10 days in light of eternity with God? It kind of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter 4. You remember all that Paul went through, you know, uh, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, just crazy stuff, imprisoned over and over again. And, and you remember what Paul called those things? It's just funny. Yeah. Oh, you mean those light and momentary things? It's like, Paul, that's not, you know, the, I don't think that word means what you think it means. It's, it's that all over again. It's like, there's nothing light and momentary about any of that, Paul. And he said, now compared to the, the glory that is waiting for me, the weight of that glory, this is nothing. See, Paul had a 10-day perspective. And as God's people, we need to have a 10-day perspective. It, it helps to know that, that these trials are real, they're hard, but they're limited in measure, and they're limited in length by God. And they're used for our good and His glory. We need to know that. I can. Um, I know some of you guys are going through very hard things at times. Maybe you've been through hard things. Maybe you're going through something hard right now. Um, I'm thinking of your brother even. And there's times when you're so overwhelmed by what's right there in front of you, you can't see anything else. But isn't it, I can't think of all the times in my life where that was the case. <laughs> and then in a short period of time, sometimes, sometimes days, it all changed. Something I thought, that I'm, there's no way. I'm doomed. I'll never get past this, you know? And then literally, it's like when you're, you know, Terry mentioned driving and looking in your rearview mirror, you know, you see this thing in the road and you kind of swerve to avoid it because it's so big. And then you drive and you, you watch in your rearview mirror and it just, it just becomes this little thing that that's all. And, and I think that's what so many of these things end up being when we have a 10 day perspective. That's why Jesus tells his followers, do not fear. Literally it means stop being afraid. Trust me. I got you. You know, it's one thing to, to say to somebody, I know what you're going through. That's, that's a little comforting. It's another thing to, to know that a person knows what you're going through and they care deeply about you. That's a little better. But it's really something when you know that um, they know, they care, and they have a plan to do something about it. And that's Jesus. 
It also helps to know that Jesus knows firsthand about all the things that we're experiencing. These weights were applied to him too, right? Every one of them. And I love that our Savior Savior never asks us to go through anything that he wasn't willing to go through himself. So did Jesus know what it was like to be poor? Yeah. Didn't even know where where he would lay his head some nights. Did he know what it was like to be slandered, to have false things said, say, said about him? Yep. Put in prison? Check. Put to death? Yeah. But he kicked every one of their butts. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it, you just think about it. It's like they, all those weights were on him, and he's like, he handled them. He just handled them. And if he did that with those weights, guess what he can do with our weights? He can handle them. He can do the same thing. I shouldn't say that word, sorry. He kicked their bottoms. Tukus. That's a good one. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I care, and I'm going to do something about it. So he acknowledges their hardships, but then he he tries to reorient their perspective to be something different than it is. We need to do this so many times. I don't know how I'm I'm the king of this. I can get so bogged down into one little perspective and, and, you know, miss the forest through the trees. And Jesus wants us to know that there is a temporal earthly reality and there's a permanent heavenly reality. And we need to make sure that we're looking at everything through the right lens. I remember being a kid, we used to go to McCall and we had a cabin there and there was this giant set of binoculars that sat on the, the windowsill. And the cabin was probably a few hundred yards away from the lake. But if you pick those things up and, and look through them, it looked like the lake was right there. And conversely, if you flipped them around, it looked like the lake was a million miles away. It was like, these were such a cool thing as a kid. But this is what Jesus, I think, wants us to do with our problems. Heavenly perspective, earthly perspective. We tend to want to put our problems right here and just stare at it. And he said, hey, flip, flip those things around and get those way off in the distance like they should be. And when it comes to heaven, we do the same. We, we, heaven's way out there where we can't even see it or think about it. Now flip those things around and get, get the reality of what's coming right there for you to focus on. So I want to just quickly look at these, these weights one more time that our enemy puts on our chest to try to crush us and watch what Jesus does with each one of them. The first weight that Satan tries to use is the weight of poverty. And Jesus removes that weight by revealing that they are, in fact, rich. Isn't that cool? That's because Jesus measures wealth very differently than the world does. Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's Jesus' economy, and we can get this so wrong. In fact, one of the letters to the churches is Laodicea. This was a church, they thought they were rich. And Jesus said, nah, you guys are dirt poor. And then you've got this church, Smyrna, who thought they were poor. And Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong. You guys are rich. Now, earthly speaking, you wouldn't have thought either of those things were true. But from Jesus' perspective, that's the reality. How is this possible? How could Smyrna be considered rich? And I love this Keller quote that uh, it stuck with me all these years. He says, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that's what happened in Smyrna. Everything else got stripped away and boiled away, and they were left with Jesus, which means they're rich. Now, that can be hard for us to understand, especially since there's this prosperity gospel 
that has just seeped its way into the church, even in places that like this where we've gone on record to say we hate it. I know it still exists in people's lives because we see it all the time. And it's really just this idea that the one who pleases God will experience more worldly blessings, money, health, comfort, ease. If you please God, those, that's what you should expect. Well, here's the problem with that. Was Smyrna a church that was pleasing to God? Yeah. He didn't, he didn't correct them. He didn't say you need to change anything. Did they have any of these things? No, none of them. I mean, it was, so we, we can assume that the prosperity gospel, the premise behind it is false. And I would even go so far as to say that it's, it's a way Satan, Satan uses it to pull us away from Christ. So, so we have weight, but you know what else Satan, Satan uses bait. This is bait. This is a way to hook you and pull you away from Christ and lure you into idolatry to where you start to worship the things that, you know, I don't want my father. I just want my father's stuff. And I see that in so many Christians today. It makes me sick. No, the prize is that we get him. You know, the stuff isn't the prize. That's what the prosperity gospel does. The truth is that worldly riches are often the worst thing for the Christian because we end up hitching our wagon to the, or hitching our joy and our, our security to the wrong wagon. It's a wagon that's going to lead us down a wrong path, and it's going to just end up messing with us in the wrong way. So you have to ask yourself the question, where does my security come from? Where does my joy come from? Where does my satisfaction come from? If it isn't Jesus, you're poor. You're bankrupt. You're destitute. But if it is him, you possess everything, literally everything, You've won the lottery. You know, congratulations if you walked in today thinking you were poor. If you have Jesus, you're rich. And one could even argue that this church, Smyrna, um, that because they were the poorest, they were the purest. It's probably not a coincidence. And I know we don't want that. You know, we say, oh, Lord, you know, but I feel like the rich young ruler often, or the, you know, the rich man that came to Jesus, the young guy, and said, hey, and he said, hey, go, go sell all you have and follow me. And it's like, is there another way? Can I, can I keep that stuff and do that? Well, the second way that, that Jesus, um, or the, I'm sorry, whew, scratch that, forget all that. Second way that Satan uses to attempt to crush us in this passage is slander. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever had something said about you that you knew was false and people believed it? It's a horrible feeling. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's his answer to the slander. A crown on somebody means a lot, doesn't it? In fact, this city was famous for the crown of Smyrna, which was it referred to this prominent hill that overlooked the city. It had all these buildings. It was called the Acropolis, and it had temples and rich houses and you know all these cool things. And so it looked like the hill was wearing a crown. So there was always this picture of this crown up on this hill. And they also hosted the Olympic Games. When, if you won the Olympic Games back then, they gave you uh, a crown of laurels. You know, it was a wreath thing. But if, you, you know, if you're walking around, you know, we use gold medals now, but you see somebody walking around with that, you know that's a winner. So there was all these reminders to the Christian of all these people around that were the winners. And we, we have that today, too. It just looks different. You've got the rich. You've got the famous. You've got all these people that are the winners. And then there's the Christians, you know the scum of the earth. You know, that's, that's how you feel sometimes is the way they look at us. They've got the crowns. What do we got? And Jesus points out to them, I've got a crown for you. There's going to come a day when 
I'm going to give you the crown of life. And you know what that's going to say to everybody that's, that's looking, all the people that slandered you, all the people that were mean, all the people that it's going to tell them who the winner is. Isn't that cool? Now, we may not keep that crown. Most likely we'll throw it at Jesus' feet at some point because he's the reason for the crown, not us. But it's so cool to think that you've been slandered. I'm going to place a crown on you. And everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know that you're vindicated, that you're redeemed. That's cool. Well, the final weight that Satan tries to use against us is the fear of pain and death. And Jesus removes that weight by telling us that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, to be fair, <laughs> the first death could hurt. That You know, it's, it's real. And, and we'll find out in a second that it will. But it's nothing compared to the second death. That's the one that he's going to keep us from. And if you're not familiar with the second death, Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15 tell us the second death is the lake of fire. And anyone's name that wasn't found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. First death, painful but brief. Second death, doesn't stop. There's still time right now to avoid the second death. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can avoid that now. Your name can be written in the book of life by simply trusting that he lived a life that you couldn't live, died in your place, a death that you deserved, was buried, rose again to new life, conquered those things. And if you'll place your faith in him and confess that he's your Lord, you can be saved. A fitting way to end this study is to to talk about a famous Christian who went to the Smyrna church um, and who fully understood what we're talking about as far as this goes. And it's a guy named Polycarp. You ever heard of Polycarp? It's a name you don't forget because it's such a weird name, right? Poly, who names their kid Polycarp? Well, it, the name means fruitful or much fruit. And he definitely had that. The story of what happened to Polycarp is well documented. Uh, there's no doubt that this letter from Jesus prepared him for what was going to come and would have been a great comfort to him at some point. Polycarp had a vision one day that he was lying on his pillow when suddenly it burst into flames. That's a bad vision, I think. I don't want that one. And he told his fellow Christians that he knew what it meant. He knew that God was letting him know that he was going to be burned at the stake. And that was a common way for Christians to be killed at that time, burning them at the stake or uh, putting them in an arena and releasing lions. That was sport then. They would watch it like a football game. The day came when a warrant was issued for Polycarp's arrest. So the authorities went to his house to arrest him. And when they arrived, they were, they were embarrassed to find out that this was like an old guy, an old frail man in his 80s. And they're thinking, why are we here to arrest this guy? This is, this is silly. What's he going to do? So they, they kind of were already had a pause about this thing. And then Polycarp didn't make it easier because when they arrived, he said, hey, guys, we're going to prepare a wonderful meal for you. Sit down. And we're going we're gonna to make a night. You know, it's like these are the guys that are coming to arrest him. Let me make you some food. You guys hungry? You know, like he, he might have been partly Greek or something. You know, we'll have lamb. We'll make something nice. So all he asked them was that maybe I could have an hour to go and pray and prepare myself. So they granted him that. And even then, I can imagine they're eating and they're watching this man on his knees praying. It had to have been powerful. So on the way to the city, the government officials were conflicted about this, and they tried to persuade Polycarp to just offer a pinch of incense. Just do that thing they've asked her to do. Offer the pinch of incense before the statue of Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you've got to do, and it all goes away. That's it. What do you think he did? Not that. (laughs) When he was brought into the arena, the pro-council also pleaded with him, curse Christ, and I will release you. 
And this is what he said. He said, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The pro council finally gave up and announced his crime to the crowd. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. That was his crime. And the crowd shouted, let the lions loose. But the lions had already been put away. So they demanded that he be burned instead at the stake. The old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow, and he took courage in God. And he said to his executioners, sorry, it's good. It is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. That's a shot. <laughs> this little fire is the first death. Eh, not a big deal. The second death is the one you need to worry about. Why do you delay? Come and do your will. So they arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle, and they tied Polycarp to the pole. And he prayed aloud to God, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. And they set the wood ablaze. But then something weird happened. <laughs> it was like a it was almost like wind filling his sails. The the fire went up really huge and tall, but but it went around him. <laughs> so he's just standing in the in the midst of this fire all around him and not burning. How's that for a picture of what happens to a Christian that trusts Christ? We don't have to worry about the fire. We don't have to worry about that at all. Well, the uh, the executioner, it made him mad. So he ran him through with a long spear and, and Polycarp died. But he was immediately ushered into the presence of his Lord where he saw his face and was given a crown of life. We may never be called to die a martyr's death, but we are called to live a martyr's life. Each of us is called to die to self, to take up our cross daily, come and die. And we have that on one of the shirts, come and die. That's what it meant so that Christ can live through us. Now, all of us would probably say we want a deeper walk with Christ and that we want our life to count for more, but we don't always want necessarily what it takes for that to happen and sometimes the cost is high, but the reward is great. I couldn't help but thinking of all the different churches in the world right now that look at the American church as the one to emulate. Oh, if we could only be like the Church of America. And I think, no, if we could only be like the Church of Smyrna, the poorest and the purest. Father, thank you so much that You've, you've, you've sent us these letters even now that we can, we can be encouraged and we can learn and, and we can see what it, what it is that you love about your church and what you don't love about your church. May this be a church that lifts the name of Jesus high and that serves you well and that does get to hear, well done and good, good and faithful servant, Lord. Help us to stand out like a, a city on a hill in this world today, we ask. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.